over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. On the broadcast today, it's my privilege to have Dr. William Varner. Dr. Varner is a professor of biblical studies at the Masters University for 25 years and counting. He's authored over a dozen books. He's been to Israel, that's a love we share, 50 plus times and counting. He was the recipient of the Distinguished Teaching Award, and I won't list off all the years. He's been a member of Who's Who in Education in America since 1998. He received an academic prize at Biblical Seminary, valedictorian at Dropsy College. I never liked valedictorians, Doc. I'm sorry. Uh-oh. <laughs> you guys You're are in trouble. You blew the curve for the rest of us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he pastored for several years and was the director of the Institute of Biblical Studies at Friends of Israel. Do you still go to Israel from time to time? Well, after my 51st trip, Michael, I'm not going to say that I'm hanging up my spurs are stopping, but I'm slowing down. I guess the whole COVID thing has sort of like slowed me down. It's now been two years since I've been. I really don't know if I'll be going. Got it. Got it. Yep. I understand. Uh, He's also been a, a member of the Evangelical Theological Society, aka ETS, authored many, many books and hundreds of journal and magazine articles. And in his spare time, he loves studying the Civil War. That's an, oh, yes. That's an interesting hobby. Well, anyway, we're glad to have you on the broadcast. Again, thanks so much. We're going to talk about this right Streu epistle that uh, mm. I don't read German. Did uh, Luther actually use the word Streu, or is that as close as we can get? Yeah, know? evidently there is a German word. It translates literally as that, which we don't have that word in English, Streu, but it yeah. it's really a German word that means like straw. Like straw, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So hard to chew or dry or whatever he may have meant, but and we'll get to some of that. And what I like to do with our experts who've written commentaries, and by the way, Dr. Barner has a neat little devotional commentary on the book of James. We'll have information in the show notes. You can pick it up, but very easy to use, very helpful. You could probably get through it as I'm thumbing through it, probably in about what, 10 weeks, eight weeks, maybe? Uh, yeah, if yeah. you read it slowly, yeah, yeah. you can actually make yeah. it through that faster than that. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciated it. And of course, beyond the controversial passages that we are certainly going to chat about, Dr. Varner, give us sort of an overview of what we know of James at the time that this is being written. Well, let me just be brief about James the person. In my first book, I I said uh, a new perspective on James the epistle, and I had an appendix a new perspective on James the man. And I'm trying to push the idea, uh, certainly not that he was the first pope, I don't want to go there, but if there was a human head of the church, certainly in Jerusalem, it was James, Mm -hmm. was the numero uno guy. If you said, where is James? Nobody would have to say, which James are you talking about? Because everybody would recognize that it's James, the Lord's brother, The one from Acts 12 on seems to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. So 
with that type of reputation, and I would even say that Paul recognized him in that way, he's a person to listen to and an ideal person to write what I call, I guess I could call it an encyclical, and did not just for one church, but for the Jewish believing community in the diaspora, as he says in James 1.1. So again, you know, I don't want to go in the direction of a Pope, but I think if somebody, an unbeliever, showed up in Judea in 50 AD and just asked a believer, who's in charge of this? They would say James is mm. the human being in charge of it. Yeah. Well, and we know from Acts, from the so-called Jerusalem Council, that he is the, the head bishop or overseer, whatever we, term we want to use, of that local assembly. And it's interesting, which gives us a backdrop on the interaction that he's going to have with Paul and Barnabas that led up to the Jerusalem Council. Because Paul and Barnabas are out you know, sharing Christ with people that don't know Judaism, we might say, and they're coming to Christ and it's causing a bit of a dust up saying, wait a minute, essentially how Jewish do you have to become before you can become a Christian. And this, of course, uh, leads up to what we call the Jerusalem Council. And we have James as the acting apostle there who's sort of calling them in from the field saying, give us a report on what's going on out there. And I've always seen that as a very interesting passage for a number of reasons, because now the apostles have dispersed to some degree. Paul, of course, is taking the gospel as the beachhead out, Acts 1-8, right? And so we come back to the Jerusalem Council, and we've got this remarkable exchange. I would love to have been a fly on the wall when they're interviewing Paul and Barnabas, and when the council met, when they call them back in, they say, okay, these are the three things we require of you going forward. Right, yeah. <laughs> and we don't require of you that you tell Gentiles they have to be circumcised. They have to become Jews, in effect. Peter had said that's a yoke that even we couldn't carry, the yoke of the law. So, uh James says, put nothing on these Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ, but, you know, for the sake of unity, don't offend your Jewish brother mm-hmm. by abstaining from certain things. Mm-hmm. Which, interestingly, those things they were to abstain from were sin. That's right. It, it, it wasn't like they were laying on some new set of burdens, you know, like, oh, the policy well going forward is going to be. <laughs> right. So anyway, I find it a fascinating insight on the politics of early churches and conflicts within the body of Christ and how you sort things out. It's a lovely study. Well, so, and you mentioned the brother of Jesus, and just for some of our friends, and I don't know that I've talked about this lately, but James is a biological half-brother to Jesus Christ, correct? Yes. The technical term that sometimes you see is uterine brothers, Mm -hmm. shared the same uterus, but not the same father. Right. <laughs> of course, our Roman Catholic friends and our Greek Orthodox friends want to say that the brothers were cousins or they were children of a previous marriage. But the New Testament makes it pretty clear. Yes. These were brothers and not spiritual brothers. They were physical brothers because they appear with Mary, his physical mother, And Mary and his brothers are there outside the building where he's teaching and healing, and they can't quite understand him. So brothers means brothers. There's a perfectly good word, Greek word, for cousin in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. That's not the word that's used of James and his three other brothers and two sisters. One of the things in the letter proper, unlike Pauline writing, which almost always begins with this magnificent Christology, he spends sometimes an entire chapter, as we call chapters, of, say, 1 Corinthians with this incredible Christology. 
James jumps right in, mentioning he's a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, and you mentioned dispro, the dispersed greeting. And then he jumps right into a very practical injection there. Consider it joy. I find that such a stark literary stylistic change in our New Testament, you know, post obviously the Gospels, because there's no Christology, there's no basis, no foundation. Do you think that, going back to your premise, not quite a pope, do you think he was that much of a formidable person that he didn't need to go there, or do you think it was pressing? I know we're speculating here, but what was his context that he's going right after them, dealing with joy in the midst of trials? Yeah, there's a a very, very good question there. Jesus is only mentioned by name twice in the book, one and then later two, one. But I have a scholarly friend, not an evangelical, who said James is the least Christian book of the New Testament because Jesus is only mentioned twice. But he neglects that there's a reference to the coming of the Lord in chapter 5, clearly a reference to Jesus. But then there's these many allusions, almost quotations of sayings of Jesus. There are more sayings of Jesus alluded to in James than in any other book. So while you're right, he doesn't launch into a Christological essay, but maybe he feels like he doesn't need to Mm -hmm. because his hearers already have a high view of Jesus. They just need to learn more about Jesus' teachings. Now, there's probably no reason to believe that he's talking about persecution there, but he is talking about trials. All of us have trials, whether we have been persecuted or not. So that's really a universal problem. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So I think he jumps right in because, like the Proverbs of the New Testament, he wants to get to behavior and the way we should live. And there's some argument, again, I've studied this not probably as much as you have, but I've studied it to the point where you line up on some positions within what we call evangelical fundamental Bible-believing folks. But this whole issue of the trials and endurance and endurance having its result, lacking in us, this whole sort of a cadence, the syntax that builds to this conclusion, I came across this, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you have a different take on it, that he's not saying be happy about your trial but be joyful because as you go through this, you're going to have a benefit called endurance. Absolutely. And endurance is what's going to help you. It says, you know, make you perfect or complete in the King's English too, make you perfect, complete, lacking. In other words, you're going to grow through the trials of life. As you go through them, you're going to learn some enduring things that you would not have learned otherwise. Does that sound right? I think you're exactly right, Michael. And uh, what you mentioned about building there, I think, uh, some of us think that there's a like a staircase going up here. Trials, joy, perseverance, maturity, you know, one step after another in James 1, 2 through 5. You know, I don't need to tell you, and I probably don't need to tell a lot of the listeners that happy, happy, happy is not the same thing as joyfulness. Happiness can sometimes be just outward, but joy is deeply abiding So he's not saying, hey, be happy, be happy, smile when you're undergoing trials, but consider it as an opportunity for a deep-seated joy to manifest itself when you understand the purpose of trials. Mm. So that's what's going on here. It's not shallow at all. It's quite deep. 
So from verse 4 to 5, we have a transition of a kind. He says, so that you'll be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And then he has his but if you lack wisdom. So he picks up on, I don't want you to lack anything, but if you lack wisdom, ask God. Give me your thumbnail view of how do we get wisdom from God, Dr. Martin. Yes. Let me just take a few minutes there. James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament, and there's something to that because one of the main themes in the book of Proverbs is wisdom, wisdom, okay? And that comes out very strongly in the book of James. As a matter of fact, right in the middle of the book, James 3, 13 through 18, is this, if any of you lack wisdom, Mm -hmm. uh, what does wisdom look like? And wisdom is shown by one's good conduct and the gentleness of wisdom. The wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. I'm uh, quoting there from 313 Mm -hmm. through 17. So wisdom manifests itself in behavior. It manifests itself in peace. It manifests itself in joyfulness. So um, I would see 313 through 18 is sort of the peak of the book, Michael, Hmm. because it's contrasting wisdom from above with that stuff from below that is marked by earthly, natural, demonic, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil practice. That's the stuff from below. But the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable. Mm -hmm. So I take that and stamp it on every paragraph of the book. James is saying to be single-minded. James is the first one to use that Greek word that we translate in 1.8 and 4.8 as double-minded. Yes. He didn't invent the idea, but he's the first one to use that Greek word, dipsukos. So what is a double-minded person? One who wants it both ways. And how that works with wisdom from above is a single-minded person is marked by wisdom from above, 3.13 and 17. But a double-minded person is following two sets of wisdom, the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, and that can only result in disorder and every evil work. So if you lack wisdom, ask of God because it comes from above. And if you want it both ways, you're double-minded. And James says very clearly, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Mm. And that's a, boy, talk about a practical sidebar lesson for today. Christians who say, I believe in Jesus, but I, mm. you know, I can choose to live under the sexual identity, or I can choose to have an affair, or I can choose to divorce my uh, husband or wife for any cause, or, or, or. And we've almost sanctioned sin because we have this freedom in Christ. And your explanation there of the above and below wisdom is so helpful to think through about being double-minded. Because a lot of times I think he plays on the theme about being pulled to and fro as well, correct? And you're going to get there quicker than me. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse, where is it? The uh, illustrations from nature. Yes. And so forth. Yeah, you know, one fountain give forth uh, mm. water and bitter water. Well, it may be at different times, but it doesn't give fresh water and bitter water at the same time. Right. You know, it might go bad eventually, but no fountain, you know, gives five minutes of fresh water, then five minutes of bitter water. And he says, that's the problem with you guys. You're spouting off good, 
and bitterness, but nature doesn't work that way. A fountain doesn't work that way. A fig tree doesn't produce olives or a vine doesn't produce figs. (laughs) Salt water doesn't produce fresh water. Uh, Here's this doubleness. And all the way through the book, he's talking about this doubleness, and he uses even illustrations from nature. We bless the Lord, our Father, with our lips, verse 9 of chapter 3. Then we curse men with those same lips. Mm. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. It's double-minded. You can't follow wisdom from above and wisdom from below. So that's the tension. That's the juxtaposition. So, and then back to my question is if back to one for just a moment, how do we encourage our friends to gain wisdom? Well, first of all, ask God for it. (laughs) Very simple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ask God for it. That's what he says. And again, wisdom is not just smartness, (laughs) you know, before a test. Oh, God, give me the answers. (laughs) Give me information. Give me an understanding way in which I can see your wisdom and follow through it. If any man lack wisdom, let him Mm -hmm. ask God. So it starts with that. Though James doesn't talk a whole lot about it by looking at wise people, Proverbs does that. Proverbs tells us to look at creatures, the ants, look at models, And so uh, we have the model, however, in the book of James, of Old Testament exemplars. Mm -hmm. I would say that to answer that, asking God for wisdom, then looking for those great exemplars, he mentions Job, an exemplar of steadfastness in chapter 5. He mentions Elijah as an exemplar of prayer in chapter 5. So I would say that, ask God for it, and Mm -hmm. then look to wise people as they model that wisdom like Job and like Elijah. Mm -hmm. I use the little three-legged stool of God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. God's Word is my only foundation for truth and authority and knowledge that's always right. I need God's Spirit to control me when I read the text. I need self-control that I can't just usher in the flesh. And then I need God's people around me to sharpen me to, you know, as my good friend Dave Gibson, who I've had a friendship for 40 years, says, Michael, I need to know, do you need a dope slap right now or do you need encouragement? <laughs> you know, And you need people like that, people that can speak the truth, who love God and uh, follow Christ well. And I just don't think we can grow in any measure apart from God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. But that's, you know. That's, can I use that outline? And you can totally take it. <laughs> okay, good. I like that. I like that. That'll preach, as we say, right? It sure you know, will. Let's jump into this. Prove yourself doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Boy, have I heard a lot of convicting, shameful sermons on chapter <laughs> one, about 19 and following. You know, okay, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. I get those reversed. <laughs> I'm slow to hear. I'm quick to speak and really fast to anger. Put aside filthiness, humility, receive the word, which is able to save your soul. Prove yourself doers, not merely hearers. Walk us through that a little bit. You know, I'm teaching a course in James and Jude right now, Michael. And I say, you know, guys, gals, I'm not going to apologize for getting preachy in class because James preaches himself. Hmm don't have to figure out in a passage, now, how do I apply this? James <laughs> tells you, and then he nails you. Yeah. 
he applies it. So, you know, sometimes we preachers say, now, how can at the end of this sermon, what's the application? James just tells you, I love those illustrations and just following the passage that you cited, Mm -hmm. you know, um, uh, you look in a mirror and then you forget what you saw. Well, sometimes I would like to look in a mirror and then forget what I saw. Exactly. But James says, no, you don't. You want to look at yourself. You don't forget what you saw. My wife brought and I bought a mirror, Michael, and we put it above the fireplace in our living room. And I'm 5'7". My wife is 4'11". We got that mirror up, Michael. Then we stepped back <laughs> and we can't even see ourselves. We can't even see ourselves. So so that is a mirror to look at, not look in. Uh, so what's the purpose of a mirror is so you can see yourself unless it's a decorative mirror like that one above our fireplace. So uh, you look at it. But a double-minded person says, I'll read the word, and then uh, in five minutes, as I go out into the world, I'll forget it. You know, I won't live it. No, he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Don't be like a crazy guy who looks in the mirror and then forgets what he sees. And, you know, there's a practical application there, Michael. Uh, We have the Bible. Do we look at it or do we look in it? Hmm. Uh, and if we look in it, we will see oftentimes our ugly face and know that we have to repent and be cleansed. Or do we just look at it? And uh, you know, James invites us to look into it uh, and not be a forgetful reader and hearer. Mm-hmm. Verse 26, again, you don't have to work too hard to apply it. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bright. Well, let me stop there for a moment. How do we understand James' use of the term religious, because you and I would differentiate, we don't have a religion in the sense of do's and don'ts. We have a relationship with Christ, and I'm going to just sidebar, because Christ has saved me, because he's forgiven me of my sins, my life is to obey him and to follow him. But that is not the—religion isn't the efficacious way I'm saved. So when he says religious, and we'll talk about that more about the religion of widows and orphans— Give us your uh, definition there, if you could. Yeah, he's not using it in the same way we distinguish we mm-hmm. religion and faith. Religion and real faith. Anybody who's you know a Muslim is religious. Anybody who's Jewish is religious. Anybody who's nominally Christian is religious in our terms. But he's using it in its vital way. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, truly religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is worthless. So he's using it more in its practical meaning of religion. And then he goes right to define it. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit the widows and the fatherless and to keep oneself in the world. Is it any different than doing the good works Ephesians 2.10 tells us to do? Is religion here different? Is it different? I got to think on that because Paul says true faith will result in works. Okay, Ephesians 2.10. I think James is probably saying the same thing. A real religion will manifest itself in compassion for others and keeping oneself unspotted from the world. Very interesting. Verse 27, he uses a lot of almost sacrificial terms, pure, unspotted, unstained, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But he gives it another spin. It's not a 
pure, you know, undefiled sacrifice, he defines it in a behavioral context. He takes those uh, sacramental terminology that any Jewish person offering sacrifices would be familiar with and turns it into behavior. Hmm. And personally, I think that's what the book of Proverbs does. Instead of just offering sacrifices, let your sacrifices be real manifestations of your life and to keep yourself unspotted from the world, not just keep yourself unspotted from unkosher food or something like that. I have studied this, and I know you have more, but I came across something years ago, and I can't attribute the uh, author or commentator, but his comment about orphan and widow ministries being pure and undefiled, this author said it was a Hebraism, in other words, from A to Z, from the oldest— Well, I agree. Okay, the oldest, most vulnerable person to the youngest, most vulnerable person. So, And we see today a lot of—and they're— good movements to help orphans and widows, but churches often have an orphan and widows fund of some kind, and I'm not disparaging those, but that's not what he meant here. He's saying, as you look across the most vulnerable on both ends of the spectrum, those are the ones you care for, right? Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Orphans and widows is a summary expression for the disadvantaged people in society. One can be disadvantaged or suffer a setback and not be an orphan or a widow. Poverty that we are told to help people with is not just a socioeconomic status. I believe that in both the Old and New Testament, a poor person is one who has suffered a serious setback in life and they become poor. An orphan has suffered a serious setback in life and become an orphan. Same thing for widows. So I think he's he's using them as examples of anybody who has experienced an unexpected horrible setback. Mm -hmm. We need to care for them. And don't talk to me about your faith if you don't care for the disadvantage. Mm -hmm. Let's jump to chapter two, where we have this favoritism section about we pay special honor to those who are rich. And uh, he uses a, a very common illustration, you know, when you're in assembly and someone's, we would just say, dressed up well and has gold jewelry, you pay more attention to them, but the poor yep. person you don't pay attention to. Practically speaking, oh my! in, in Western Christianity, if it were not for large, generous donors, uh, let's be truthful, you and I wouldn't have a job. Yep. Uh, many of the churches yep. wouldn't have been built. So I don't want to rush to say, you know, I want to ask the question, how do we talk about this in a way that God allows some people to make wealth and give generously? And if I have a friend who falls in that category, am I showing favoritism, Dr. Varner? Yeah, well put. I think Paul sums it up well in First Timothy 6, that rich are not bad, rich by themselves by being rich. They are bad when they neglect to share their money with others to help them. That's what makes a rich person bad. You know, I have a Christian friend in my fellowship at church who made a donation to the university, $12,900 to purchase 1,000 copies of my book on the Passion Week to give out to pastors. What an investment. He uses his money to help others. What I think James 2 is saying this, The pastor who curries the favor of rich people in his congregation and neglects the other folks because the other folks can't give to the building fund the way 
that rich man gives. So I'm going to take him out to lunch. I'm going to curry favor with him. And I don't know if I have any time for the rest of the folks because they can't help build my my building fund. That's what I think mm-hmm. talking about. But don't condemn wealthy people because they are wealthy, but don't be afraid to condemn them if they neglect the stewardship of that money and sharing it with others. But oh Michael, I know the feeling. I was a pastor. I know I want to build my church and people with money will help me build my church. And other folks whose faith may be just as strong, but not wealthy, I neglect them and I I don't give them the time. Oh, every pastor faces this. So it's not that they're wrong in themselves, but we need to challenge them to share that wealth with those who do not have the things that they have. The thing I've learned over the years, whether I was a pastor or when I was at Moody, was that people of means and wealth, Christians specifically, they're not as impressed with their wealth as other people are. (laughs) And if you and I in our roles, the way the body of Christ is made up, if we're loving and care for them and consider them one more of the flock of God, they appreciate that. They appreciate being treated uh, normally, so to speak. Not being isolated and held up. Yeah. You know, uh, my brother who gave that gift for those thousand copies of my book, he doesn't want his name mentioned. He doesn't want his name in the book that I gave you this book. That's the type of godly, wealthy people that you want to see in your congregation. And we have a culture right now, not to get too far off, it almost vilifies wealth. You know, especially for people that maybe aren't working or don't have a very good job and they'll vilify the wealth and they think they're entitled to their wealth. And it's a very interesting balance in Scripture that does give us a lot of information about using money and being stewards. But I just find it important and I appreciate your discussion to say, look, these are people that have capacity that can do things for others. And it's not about them. But God's wired them to make money. God's wired them to be successful. They're good businessmen and women and they want to help. Just like Cindy and I, we love to give money away. We don't have as much as, say, another friend, but we have a lot more than some others. So yep. it's, it's always that scale of, you know, I'm sorry, I'm a fleshly person. I look at, you know, the wrong thing sometimes. I look at the people with money and I go, hey, you know, and that's a tension I think most of us face, especially if we're in the nonprofit world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how true it is. Because you got to yeah. have donors to make the seminary run. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's go to the the meaty part of this in chapter two, the faith and works chapter. I'm waiting for you to solve the Pauline James debate once and for all here. Let's just, let me read part of this. What use is it? This is chapter two, verse 14, my brethren. If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? I'm going to come back and ask you about that faith specifically. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? And I'm going to come back to your observation about orphans and widows being the vulnerable of society. And here he's saying, here's an example. Here's somebody who's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Here's an opportunity for a good religious work and you're not doing it, all right? Continues, let me go to 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, and I'm gonna omit the being there in Nasby, is dead by itself. Mm-hmm. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, 
and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. well I'll stop right there for a moment. So this is the big tension, and I think it's a little bit uh, elementary to talk about Paul's view of justification by faith alone. I think we know that text well. What is James saying here, and what is he not saying here? I like your translation of verse 14. If someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? That is backed up by the Greek text. There is an article in front of that second faith. I won't get into the technical meaning of that in Greek, but it's referring back to the faith that he had just described, a faith that is not accompanied by deeds and works. Can that type of faith that is not accompanied by deeds save him? And he asks a question that in the Greek expects a negative answer. No, that kind of faith cannot save him. There is no contradiction between James and Paul, when Paul says you are saved by faith, not by works, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and 10 says that faith will lead to works. Let me sum it up this way. I I use this illustration, Michael. Paul and James are not enemies, okay? We say, how can we reconcile? Right. You know, they're not enemies to reconcile. But I think they're addressing a different problem, Okay, two different problems. Paul is addressing those who say, you got to have works, you got to have works to earn God's forgiveness, whereas James is not dealing with that. He's saying, I have faith. You might call it a simplistic faith, a faith alone that is not accompanied by any change of life, okay? It's that type of empty faith that is not accompanied by the works that Paul mentions in Ephesians uh, 2 and then Galatians 5, where he talks about faith which works by love. Let me use this illustration. Instead of Paul and James facing each other with swords drawn, about to attack each other, let's imagine them turning around back to back with their sword. Each of them is facing a different opponent, and they're really together on this. They both agree that faith and work somehow go together, but Paul is using his sword to attack the guy who says, you got to have works to be saved. They are what causes God to save you, and Paul says, no, James is facing the guy says, all right, I only need faith. I don't need any of those works. I believe that God is one. That's all I need. And James says, absolutely not. That kind of faith cannot save you. So if we see them back to back facing different foes, I think can see that they don't have to be reconciled because they're not contradicting each other. It's interesting. Luther thought that way. A fellow reformer of his, Calvin, did not feel Right. Luther stuck James at the end of the Old Testament in small print. He he wasn't (laughs) even sure that it it should be in the New Testament. Calvin wasn't like that. Cranmer in England was not like that. They held up both Paul and James as equally inspired. What do we do with the phrase, you must have good works to prove that you're saved? Because works are the fruit of salvation, while faith is the root of salvation. A good root produces fruit, okay? 
Faith is the root and works are the fruit. So if a person does, I'm interrupt you. So if a person does not have good works, are you saying they're not saved? I think that that is what James is saying. Is your faith either dormant or is it dead? James says that kind of faith is dead. Well, that's, that's why I emphasize the Greek linchpin there, the article, Absolutely. that faith, because part of me says, okay, wait a minute. Just And I, I love your illustration of back-to-back. It's a great way to look at it, and I, I'm a big stickler on context for folks. Understand the context, which is why I asked you about James when we started this discussion. Who is he writing to? Jews, dispersed Jews. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. dispersed Jews would have a different issue with their salvation and works than the Goyim Gentiles that Paul was mm-hmm. largely dealing with. So, of course, he's going to talk to them in a different set of vocabulary, we might say, because those issues, the Jewish issues, will be different, right? And there's this right. tendency they want to go back to the law. They want to go back yeah. to the sacrifice, back what they knew in the synagogue. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. But this is where it gets, I think, dangerous in our conversations as Christians is I'm not ready to look at Dr. William Varner's life and say he doesn't have enough good works or he does have enough good works and he's saved or he's not saved. That makes me very terrified. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? I agree. We should not appoint ourselves as judges in this. I know that there are spiritual leaders in local churches sometimes who have to make hard decisions. This person is not manifesting deeds that matches faith, so we must remove him or her from membership. Elders, spiritual leaders have to make those hard decisions. But you and I sitting around should not be going through the congregation and say, yeah, that person's got enough works. He's saved. That person does not have enough works. He's not saved. No, that is not what we should be doing or setting ourselves up. But, as but even further, Dr. Arnold, the tension becomes, how do we quantify it? Yeah. How much fruit is yeah, fruit? Yeah. And that's where I, you know, and believe me, I've been on both sides of the evangelical fundamental Bible-believing spectrum on this going, no, demonstrably, I agree with you. There has to be a changed life. I agree Mm -hmm. fundamentally. I'm just very sheepish to start measuring or quantifying that change for somebody else, much less myself. You Uh, know, Michael, let me be personal here. I'm 73 years old, okay? When I was 33 years old, I was the judge. I knew everything. I could look at people and tell them whether they're (laughs) saved or not, because at 33, I was a wise person and knew everything. Now I'm 73. As Dr. Hendricks said, you've been to the cemetery. You learned all that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. I just got out of seminary. I knew everything. And I was harsh at times. So now I'm 73. Believe me, I haven't become just a liberal, okay? No. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but but I'm a bit more gracious than I was when I'm 33 and say, well, maybe I'm not a fruit inspector in the end. Let's leave it to God. Let's just exhort the brother and the sister or the professing brother and the sister to show the fruit if they well, are. Yeah, re- we're, we're calling them to Christ. We're calling them to obey. We're calling them to grow in their faith, right? Amen. Amen. And, and if the guy is living with his girlfriend or he's married in the middle of a divorce, living with a woman, and I say, I love you like crazy, but this is wrong. You yep. know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit yep. is telling you it's wrong. Maybe I'm your only Christian friend telling you it's wrong, but I'm going to tell you it's wrong. You know uh, what? And maybe how they respond to that exhortation will give an indication. Well, if they yeah. say, Varner, mind your own business. I'll live with whom I want to live. 
then that may be an indication that they don't want the works to match their faith. Yeah. So how are they going to respond to that exhortation is a good question too. If we parse this, and I love this discussion, if we parse this too thin, we can get in trouble. But yeah. the act of conversion or being born again, a new creation in Christ, implicit, there's some kind of change. The yes. problem is the measuring of that change, or when I lay my spiritual viewpoints and identify so much with your story, I say legalism is when you lay your spiritual issues on somebody else. Yeah. And that, if you were once overweight and you're not now, or you were once into pornography or you're not now, whatever, and you say, oh, well, that person, they can't be a Christian because I have victory or I grown, as opposed to saying, not to put too fine a point on it, are we commingling the act of salvation and the process of sanctification? Yes, we are. And I think a person needs to grow in maturity to develop a better attitude. That was my point at 33. I thought that I knew everything. Now at 73, I'm a bit more gracious. The person themselves who sits as a judge needs to understand people need to grow. (laughs) People need to understand these things a little bit better and be patient with them. And if they finally get to the place where they say, get lost, I'm going to love my sin, then you know that you've got to nail them as having a so-called faith without works. And that faith is dead. But we need to be slow in coming to that. Well, and and I encourage folks to say that there's two possibilities, and I'm not going to probably know them on this planet, unless the person has a real change in life. If I'm dealing with a person that's living in sin, professing Christianity, I have two options. Either he or she never trusted Christ, or they did, and they're living in sin. Right. And that just seems to me a lot better terra firma than if I say, well, if you don't read your Bible every day and pray every day, and you're not in a local fellowship, and you're, you haven't completely resolved your sexual you know, image identification issues, and you're not, you know, you're not as, quote, good a Christian as me, close quote, in some way, shape, or form, then you're not saved. And that's the danger I see with so much of the way this text can be misused. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just read it, apply it, and uh, let the Lord convict them and let them see that a faith that produces no works at all, no fruits at all, it's a questionable whether that's valid faith or not. I'm trying to goad them on to grow in sanctification, or I'm trying to goad them to say, did you really trust Christ? I use an illustration often about benchmarks, and I used to be a mountain climber, and I'll say, when you go to the top of a 14,000 or above mountain in the continental United States, you'll see a benchmark that was put up there usually Mm. in the 50s by the United States Geological Survey Society. And these benchmarks are hammered in the granite on top of Hmm. Long's Peak or whatever. And it says 14,256 feet or whatever. And I say, you need a benchmark that says, I know I trusted Christ. And this is what I mean by that. I put my faith in Jesus Christ to do for me what I cannot do for myself. He lived, he died, he was buried, he came back from the dead. And any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation are forgiven of sin and given a free gift called eternal life. Now, I got to live, but that benchmark to me, I think, is missing in a lot of people's lives that they don't know that they know that they know what they believed. And then I can't expect them to be growing in sanctification if there's not some benchmark from which they began. I don't know. Amen. That's the initial faith. Yeah. But if it's real, faith is the root, it will bear fruit. 
But, you know, you know, Jesus said it in the parable, some 30, some 60, some hundredfold. Not everybody bears a hundredfold, but they will bear 30-fold if it's good seed on good ground. Let's move on into, um, I want to talk about so many things with you in detail, but I want to also cover the book as much as we can. The Tongue of the Fire. This one doesn't need much application, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Uh, just read it and be convicted. Okay. He's Next. already said, uh, you know, a, a person who doesn't bridle his tongue is like preview of coming attractions <laughs> back in, in, in chapter one. Now he gets to that and he says, bridle, you know, let's apply that bridle to a horse. Let's apply that uh, that steering mechanism to a boat, uh, to a ship. The bit is very small. The rudder is very small. The fire begins with a small spark. But look at the amazing destructive power or constructive power that a little thing can control a mighty horse, a big ship or can produce a conflagration. So I think he's saying, I use this expression. I heard a guy say many years ago, that little piece of flesh between your teeth mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. can cause so much destructive power, far worse sometimes than physical attacks or the verbal attacks that we have on people that are so destructive. And I think that's the point he's making in the chapter. One of my professors said, the caged animal that cannot be tamed. Yep. Yeah. I heard a preacher say that just recently. He says, I have a caged animal. If I feed that animal, it might break out of the cage. Yep. If I drink in the cage, it'll uh, control that animal within me. I find a strange sense of humor in many things in life. And I, I go through seasons where I bite my tongue a lot when I eat. And mm. I go... I need to go see my dentist about this. And then I have this like pejorative moment going, no, the Lord's just reminded me to bite my tongue more often. There you go. <laughs> because it's, a, yeah. it's the one thing that, you know, and it reveals the heart, as he says. It reveals what comes out of it. I love the way he explains it in uh, verse 9 and 10. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men. You know, Michael, the not the tongue. Just like the bridle is not really the issue, it's the person controlling the bridle. Yes. Rudder is not really the issue, it's the pilot controlling yes. the rudder. Yeah, you know, so the tongue is just that piece of flesh between our teeth, but the heart that manifests itself in controlling our lack of controlling the tongue is the problem. Too often, James is just considered a moralist. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But from the statement earlier in chapter one, that those temptations come from within and the tongue wagging is actually wagged by a heart, by something within. So James is not just a moralist. He knows that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm -hmm. He's just following in the steps of his older brother who said these things in the Sermon on the Mount. I think of modern day preachers, expositors, teachers, whether it's, you know, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, David Jeremiah, you know, people that we would, you know, respect and appreciate. And I often anthropomorphize the New Testament, maybe to my peril, but I think of James as sort of the 
Chuck Swindoll-esque expositor <laughs> in that day because he wasn't doing, you know, I tend to do a little bit more, you know, language let's say, than some pastors do, which is just different. We're all different. But the exhortation, the common sense, the cleverness with language and illustration, James is so good at that. And here he is, as you mentioned as we began, that we would recognize in some quote, the leader of the first century church. Yeah. Well, you know, not to drop names, but I won't be critical, so don't worry. Someone told me that when uh, John MacArthur was here and Chuck Swindoll was not too far away, that the difference between them is that guys who liked doctrine oriented themselves more towards John MacArthur. Guys and gals who liked application oriented themselves more towards Mm, Chuck Swindoll. That's not being said by me as a criticism of either one of them. It's, yeah, I would say that Paul and his Romans 1 to 8 is you're more like John MacArthur. James, I agree with you, is more like Chuck Swindoll or vice versa. But it's, it's, it's just application, the— Application, application. Right, but it's just, again, I use that carefully just to explain when we read the Bible. I often use the big A, and I make the gesture with my hand, the big A author and the little A author. The big mm-hmm. A author being God the Father through the Spirit, little A author being the personality and the style— and the ability of the human, in this case, James. Again, that to me expands the scripture's beauty because mm-hmm. it's not just plates in a hat where someone dictated what God said, that he used human beings moved by the spirit to pen these marvelous words that in and of themselves are a remarkable literary accomplishment, even if you don't believe in God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they're they're mind boggling. Okay, uh, this is too much fun. Let's move. <laughs> let, let me ask you, because we're nearing our time here. Let me ask you, um, give us, Dr. Varner, as you look at chapter four and five, land us on a place that you really want to talk about or expand on a little bit or emphasize. I call James four, seven through 10, the hortatory, the exhorting peak of the book. Okay. A rapid fire machine gun set of commands here. Be subject to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. You double-minded. There's the theme again. Mm-hmm. Miserable and mourn and cry. Let your laughter be turned to joy. Mourning, excuse me. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Rapid fire, 10 commands. It's like, let me take them one at a time, James. But he's really zeroing in, the hortatory peak of the book. And it's interesting that he mentions that double-mindedness again as one of those commands. Purify your hearts. You're double-minded. The double-mindedness, the choosing this and choosing this and wanting them both, really comes from a heart that is not purified. A purified heart wills one thing, and that is to be one-minded. Out of that purified heart comes that single-mindedness. And then, of course, he just admonishes the businessman. There are two passages in James where he might be talking not necessarily about believers, but by outsiders who may be hanging on in the congregation. The businessman who plans at the end of chapter four without taking God into consideration. And then these businessmen, these owners of farms who are rich, but nothing's wrong with their being rich, 
but they are sticking it to the poor farm laborers who they won't pay a living wage. They hire in the morning to work on their farm, but they don't pay them at the end of the day. And he is really lambast them. And I think there he's not saying, now I'm talking to the unsaved. I think he's saying, you know, if the shoe fits, wear it. If you try to plan your business without God, you are going to be surprised and shocked because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. That's 4, 13 through 17. But in 5, 1 to 6, he says, you owners of farms, guys, you've got to pay a living wages to your workers. Here in Southern California, we have guys standing on the corner, Michael, Mm -hmm. every morning. All right. And you can drive past them and say they're illegal immigrants. I'm not going to hire them. But those guys are looking for a job for the day. They will clean your yard. They will mow your lawn. And you know what? If you say, I'll pay you $25, and then at the end of the day, you give them 10, what recourse do they have? They're not going to take you to court. They have nothing to rely on. They cry out to God. Mm. So says the cries of the laborers go out to the Lord. You're not paying them what you should, but they appeal to the Lord. So he is really, really hard on these rich people, not because they're rich, but because they don't pay a living wage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was with an extraordinary wealthy individual some time back and had been a policymaker in a previous administration. And I was asking him questions about the national debt and the national deficit. And he waved his hands at me and he goes, Michael, all those zeros before the decimal point don't mean anything. They're just zeros. Hmm. And I was so taken aback because the man is a worldly recognized economist. And that was his assessment. And I Hmm. thought, this is astonishing Again, not to be hard or unkind with him. I don't know where he is spiritually, but my point is simply being, Cindy and I have, you know, we hire people to do our yard and this, that, and the other. And, you know, I often say we need to overpay them, even if they do a lousy job. Absolutely. Because they know we're Christians. They know I'm a pastor. They know this, that, and the other. And if we treat them poorly, you know, and at the end of the day, it's his money after all, right? I'm just a steward. But, you know, James. James accuses these guys of murder. Yes. You've killed that. You know what? This Jose, you know, that I hire for the day, you say, well, he'll just take that money and go buy tequila at the end of the day. How do you know that? He might go home to Maria, who's got a little Nino, and they're dependent on that $25 for the food for that day. Now that's, I'm talking about Southern California. I don't know, you know, if you identify with that in your area of the country, but that's what James is talking about. And it really hurts and it's painful yes. when you it and you realize he's talking to me. Yes. Let me ask you finally, this section about praying for the sick. And again, abstracts, books, commentaries, ETS papers galore on yep. what this means. Give us the Dr. Varner definitive explanation. <laughs> okay, I'll do it in 90 seconds. I believe you. It's, it's, it's either sacramental, the oil is some sort of imparting some sort of holiness to them. And our friends in the Roman Catholic Church do extreme unction. So it's either sacramental or it's medicinal. 
that oil was used as medicine, particularly in the ancient times. The Good Samaritan poured oil and wine into the man's wounds. So could it be medicinal? Well, uh, maybe. But I think that Doug Moo, and you've probably heard of Doug Moo, has a good suggestion. He says it's setting the person apart, not necessarily medicinally, not necessarily sacramentally, but by anointing him, we are focusing in on him, setting him apart. You know, anointing with oil in the Old Testament was setting people apart to be the Messiah or the king or a prophet. Let's set this person apart for a concentrated effort of prayer. So I don't think it's necessarily medicinal or sacramental, but it's more setting them apart for concentrated prayer. And then he says, the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. What do we do with that? I understand that, but I think all of these statements, including Jesus' statements, are in the will of the Lord, in the will of the Lord, which doesn't mean we don't pray, but we always say it in the will of the Lord. Mm Dr. William Varner, a multiple author, but in this particular emphasis, we want to point out his little devotional commentary on the book of James. You can find information about Dr. Varner and that little commentary in the show notes. Dr. Varner, thank you so much. It's been fascinating having you on the broadcast. I hope you'll come back sometime. I would love to do that. It's been a delight. Thank you so much for your time. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.